Father, we love you and we thank you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the prophets. We thank you for not giving up on us, for not abandoning us. Father, we thank you that your love for us was so great that not only did you not turn from us and, 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 and abandon us, but you actually came and served us. You served us. You died for us. You gave your life for us so that we could have life with you. And Father, we are forever and eternally grateful. Father, your words are the words of life. They point to you. They tell us about you. This is how we grow in our relationship with you, by growing in our knowledge and understanding and meditation and familiar, familiarity with your word. Father, I pray that we hide your word in our hearts and that we, we, we study it to understand it, to know you better. We love you, Father. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. And I won't be using that word much more. My southern drawl is starting to stiffen up my tongue. <laughs> well, we are back in Isaiah. Um, one thing I want to point out is that Jesus and the other New Testament apostles, um, writers and, and speakers in the New Testament, we see them quote Isaiah often. They quote Isaiah a lot. Um, I just want to start with, with uh, this one. As, uh, Romans, where... Paul is speaking to the Romans, and he quotes Isaiah. This is a passage that we are all familiar with, and it's talking about salvation. Um, I talk about the Romans' road. Um, it's, a, it's several verses throughout Romans um, that, get, that you can memorize and learn to be familiar with to help share the gospel with someone. You finish Romans' road with Romans uh, ten thirteen. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But let's just look, starting in verse 8, we're going to pick up halfway through verse 8, and let's just read um, through verse 17 together. This is Paul speaking to New Testament church, Romans, the, the church in Rome, the Romans, uh, Christians, those Jews that were also um, had left during the dispersion to, to go to Rome, and different, different Christians. He was writing to them about how one is saved. He spent a lot of time talking about you're not saved by works, you're saved by faith. But then he goes on to plead with the Roman church to send out missionaries to the ends of the earth because as Paul lays it out, and this is a question a lot of people ask and don't like the answer to, what about those who have never heard the name of Christ? And that's exactly what Paul is addressing right here. What about all the people around the world who have not heard the message about Christ? And so this is, we're going to pick up halfway in verse 8. He says, this is the message of faith that we proclaim. Here it is. Paul says, this is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe with your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says that everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. Everyone, Paul's saying everyone, since there is no distinction between the Jew and Greek. He says it's not just for the Jews. This is not just the salvation of the Jews. That We're not just God's chosen people for us to be saved and for everyone else not to be saved. Salvation is for everyone. If you believe with your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. 
For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And here's where Paul's getting to this idea. How can they call? Because everyone who calls on him will be saved to the ends of the earth. But how can they call on him if they've not believed in him? And how can they believe without hearing about him? If they never hear about him, they can't believe. They can't believe, they can't call. They can't call, they can't be saved. And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? And that's the heart of Paul's begging and pleading to the Romans. You must send them. You must send them. How can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, and here he quotes Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message. So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. And so Paul has spent a long time talking about you're not saved by works, you're saved by faith. Faith comes from hearing the message of Christ. And they can't hear it if no one is sent to preach it. And if they don't hear it, they can't believe it. And if they don't believe it, they can't call on him. If they can't call on him, they can't have faith. And so Paul's beg and plea is to, spend, to send out people and, send the, and, and, and fund people to send the message to the ends of the earth. And because of that New, Ter- chest, that New Testament church's dedication to the mission of sending out missionaries with that gospel message, we, 2,000 years later, on the opposite side of the planet, have embraced that message, hold firm to that message, guard that message, have a copy of that message, and are saved through faith in that message. And so the question about what about those today? Well, the answer to that is shame on us. Plain and simple. What about those around the world who have never heard about Christ? It's a shame that 2,000 years have gone by and there are people around the world who have not heard about Christ. And it's a shame on Christians. It's a shame on us that in 2,000 years we have not gotten the message saturated to every single place on the planet. Now, keep in mind, people do continue to spread out, and Christianity is driven out of certain nations. But it should be the exception, not the rule. Sad reality is it's the rule, not the exception. So what do we do as Christians today? Well, we send our money to the North American Mission Board. We send our money to the International Mission Board. And we fund full-time missionaries who go around the world to spread the gospel so that they don't have to come home and raise money. We fund them full-time so that they have everything they need, so that their family has everything that they need, so that they can go to the ends of the earth and share the only saving message, that, the only hope anyone has. That's what we do. And I'm, I'm glad that we participate in the cooperative program here at the church. A, a portion of every single donation that's made to this church a portion of that is designated in our yearly budget to go to the cooperative program, which is split up for those purposes. International missions is probably the biggest portion um, that the, when it's divided up, the biggest portion goes to international missions. We also take up our Lottie Moon Christmas offering, which 100% of that goes to international missions. As Christians, we should be, we should be dedicated to that And we should realize how beautiful are the feet of those who bring 
good news. So let's jump to where Isaiah says this. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. Isaiah said, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings news of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. How beautiful are those feet that bring that proclamation of salvation to let us know that our God and our King reigns. And Isaiah used an imagery of a king that goes off to battle with an army and then a herald comes back and he's proclaiming the victory of the king and the army. That's the imagery Isaiah is trying to stir up in people about our king, the ultimate king, God, who has had victory over our enemy and he has established victory and therefore can secure our peace forever. He describes Israel's salvation and he paints God as a warrior, a picture of God as a warrior who will fight for them and save them. He goes on in verse 8. The voices of your watchmen, they lift up their voices, shouting for joy together. For every eye will see when the Lord returns to Zion. Be joyful, rejoice together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has displayed His holy arm in the sight of all the nations. All the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Leave. Leave. Go out from there. Do not touch anything unclean. Go out from her. Purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. For you will not leave in a hurry, and you will not have to take flight, because the Lord is going before you, and the God of Israel is your rear guard. And so here he goes on to continue to paint this picture of Israel's future redemption, this future establishing of the king and the kingdom, in which God will be our defender and God will defend us and and we will not flee ever again. We will never flee again from, from those who want to trouble us or persecute us or kill us or harm us. We will have a God that will bring us ultimate victory that we will be able to stand in forever. And this is how the great warrior, the Messiah, will save them. Isaiah goes on to explain to them this Messiah, this coming king that will establish God's kingdom forever This is how this great warrior Messiah is going to save us. You ready? Now, in Israel's mind, they were expecting what many of you would probably expect. They would expect a description of this strong, valiant warrior with no fear who will go in and conquer all Israel's enemies and establish their kingdom as 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 a victor. That's what they were expecting. And I'm sure that's what Isaiah was expecting. I mean, we're going to be honest. I've told you this before. I believe the prophets were just as dumbstruck and, 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 and shocked at what God had to tell them to tell his people just as much as anybody else was to hear it. And I'm sure when God gave it, uh, Isaiah this prophecy to tell the people, Isaiah was like, are you sure? You know, a lot of people told me, I was surprised when, when, when I got into this business, maybe I shouldn't be in this business. Maybe I'm not hearing God right. This is what God told Isaiah to describe this valiant Messiah warrior that was going to come and establish the kingdom and be their king. 
starting in verse 13. See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted, to which everybody's like, yeah. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. And immediately, you, you could start grasping at straws and thinking, well, he really fought hard, and he barely made it through. But he, obviously, he was very beaten and scarred through battle, but he, he, he survived. He, he, he was, he was vi- the victor. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will see what had not been told them, and they will understand what they had not heard. And so immediately went on is just they're confused. They don't get it. Because see, the idea that he will sprinkle many nations, this is the idea that he will sprinkle many nations with his own blood. It means that himself will be sacrificed. He will die, and his own blood will sprinkle the nations. And then this idea that everybody who's looking to try to understand, they're going to finally see what they hadn't been told. They're finally going to understand what they had not heard. The people who never got it, they never understood, they're finally going to get it. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. And that's important. We. Because here Isaiah is telling the nation, we will not value. We will despise our own Messiah. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. And so if they hadn't figured it out by now, Isaiah makes it very clear, he will die. He was cut off from the land of the living. He will die for our sins. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. This is one of those passages where I often talk about how when Jesus went to the cross and the night before he went to the cross, he was, he was in anguish. And he said, Father, if, if at all possible, let this cup pass from me. 
And that cup he was referring to, you read over and over and over throughout the Old Testament, is the cup of God's wrath. Here we see Isaiah prophesy that all caps, Yahweh, God, Yahweh, was pleased to crush his servant severely. Now, obviously you can't take that out of context. The entire Bible talks about his love for his son. What it means is he was pleased in what his son had did to give him this wrath to take the place of us. It would be similar to me giving you this type of example. You have, and, and this may be true, I hope I'm not hitting too sensitive of an issue for people because I don't know everybody's background and story, but let's say that you, you have a son that goes into the military and he fights a valiant fight, saves his, his group, whatever group he was assigned with, he saves them but ends up sacrificing his own life in order to do so. Now, he dies an excruciating death, and, 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 and you know it was not something he, he was looking forward to at all. But as a father or as a mother of a son, are you not proud? Obviously, you're broken. Obviously, you hurt. But you're proud of your son. You're proud that he, he, was, he loved them so much that he was willing to give his life to save them. And so in a similar way, you look at God. And Jesus is laying down his life, accepting the wrath of God on behalf of those who, want to be, who they want to be saved. And so there's nothing satisfying about what God is doing, but he is absolutely proud of his son. Because his son didn't just lay his life down to save five or ten men. His son laid his life down to save the entire world. That anyone, who would call on him, would have eternal life and be forgiven. So, was Jesus glad he did what he did? Jesus said it was because of his joy that he was looking forward to what, to, what was to come. God said that he was pleased that he was doing this, that he crushed him, that he poured his wrath on him, that he was supposed to pour out on us, us and so that he could then make a way for us to be forgiven. So I don't want you to misunderstand what's being said here. I want you to kind of grasp it and get the only way possible to understand that as much as this was not a pleasing process, this was something that ultimately pleased both the Father and the Son to do this for us. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. And so here we have this idea of after this has happened, after he has sacrificed, after he has died, then he will prolong his days. So we see that he will live again. He will live again, and not only that, he will be given a kingdom of people. We're going to continue to read. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. After he goes through anguish, he will be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death, 
and he was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. We see two parts here. One, he will be given the many as a portion. Those are those who are saved. Those are those who place their faith in God throughout all time, Old Testament, New Testament. He will receive them as his own, as family. And then it says he will receive the mighty as spoil. Those who wage war against him, those who fight and rebel against him will be plundered as spoil. God, throughout the entire Bible, shows us two sides. One of anger against sin and another side of love and a desire to forgive. And you can't take one of those away from God and still say that you have an accurate picture of who God is. We can't ignore the parts where he will judge and punish sin. He, he will pour out his anger and wrath against those who sin and rebel against him and will not place their faith in him from the side that he's done everything out of his love so that you could easily be forgiven. It's just your choice. God gives you a choice. Isaiah, it's important to notice that Isaiah prophesied this 700 years before Christ fulfilled this prophecy. 700 years. You know how hard it is? I would imagine, I don't know, well, none of us know, we weren't there. Do you know how, I, can you imagine how hard it would have been to be an Israelite and to go through that 400 year period of no prophets? No prophecies. Nobody saying this is, God has spoken, God, no, God hasn't spoken. For 400 years they went and no fulfillment of their promise. you imagine how hard it would have been to hold on to that faith? I mean, imagine how hard it is today for people to maintain faith in anything that anybody says is not fulfilled right away. I mean, you, you, you really don't have to wait all that long before you start saying, well, you know what, I hope it happens, but I just don't, not counting on it. Not counting on it. God gave this prophecy 700 years before he fulfilled it in his son, Jesus Christ. God is always good on his word. And God is always right on time. It may not be, and there's lots of prayers that we pray. We may not get the answers we want. And we most likely probably won't get most of them answered in the time that we want. But make no mistake about it, God makes no mistakes. And He does give us free will to choose Him or to reject Him. Jesus died and rose again for us, bearing our sins and interceding for us. Rebels, the Scripture says. Rebels, us. And He will rescue us as His own. Or, he will bring death to us that reject him. We only have this life to choose. I'm going to skip the last couple chapters, but chapters 65 and 66 um, continue on with this idea of the new creation. You know, we read in Revelation 21 and 22 about how God's going to create a new heavens and a new earth and a new creation. Isaiah prophesied this. 
This is, this is where this, this idea that Revelation 21-22 is based on this prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah said, okay, maybe we won't skip it. We'll, we'll just try to go quick. <laughs> at least re, we'll at least read a little bit. Isaiah 65, verse 17. For I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. This is 700 years before Christ. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. And he goes on and on and on talking about how um, God will bring judgment against those who do not submit to him as king. And, and, and this idea of kingship and God king, this is, a, this is the, the topic that, that Jesus and the disciples, it appears, that that's what they were talking about when they shared the gospel with people. You know, we talk about what do you say when you share the gospel with people today? Well, ideally, we would share the same thing that the New Testament believers shared when they shared the gospel with people who were lost 2,000 years ago, that Jesus shared with people who were lost 2,000 years ago. Ideally, our gospel message would look identical to their gospel message. Now, it's clear, Paul tells us the gospel is that Jesus lived a perfect life, he died for our sins, and three days later, he rose from the grave victorious. And he simplifies that for us in 1 Corinthians. He makes it real short, one sentence. But over and over and over and over, when you, when you read what Jesus went around preaching, when you read what Paul went around preaching, and when you read what, after Jesus ascended, went back to heaven, they went around preaching it was about the kingdom of God. That was the phrase they used over and over and over and over. The kingdom of God to you. The kingdom of God. Paul talked about how when he went to town to town to town to Gentile towns, he was talking about how... But it's this idea of the kingdom of God. When Jesus went and preached, he preached about the kingdom of God. When Isaiah is making these prophecies, he's talking about the kingdom of God. Isaiah is talking about a king and us who live in his kingdom. And it's a, it's a beautiful place. It's a wonderful place where our walls are secure. And we live for a king. He's royalty and we treat him as such. We lay our crowns down before him. We live our lives in honor to him. And we've gotten so far away from that in our modern United States society where, honestly, when most people think about heaven, they have no idea what it's like. They have no, no clue. And they think clouds and harps. They, they have no idea what it's actually going to be like. Isaiah talks about how oh, the animals change. The animals don't even fight and kill each other. How the, you don't have to worry about lions anymore. The lion will lay down with the lamb, Isaiah said. That the whole creation will change. A new heaven, a new earth. And he talks about this kingdom in which our king will be victorious. Our king will protect us. Our king will fight our battles for us. And that we will never have to live in fear. And that the new earth will be far superior than the current earth. That we will spread out. We will go around. We will, we will live as we were meant to live. 
And you see all these pictures. Lindsay gets upset with me about this, but, you know, we're, we're working it out. <laughs> she has no idea what I'm about to say. She, like, she, she likes to travel. She wants to see beautiful ocean, beautiful places. And I, I get it, and I do too. But I, sometimes I'll tell her, and she don't like it, I'll say, look, when God makes the new earth, it's going to be so much better than this one. We can just travel the world then. <laughs> it hasn't really worked yet. <laughs> I'm a homebody. <laughs> but no, I will tell you, on this fallen earth that is dying and, and, and falling apart and, and diseased, there are some beautiful sights on this planet. And I'm just it just amazes me to think about how much more beautiful the new earth is going to be. Um, my bees I lo- I'm losing them I lost them to beetles beetles have taken over my bees so now I can't grow anything in the garden and I'm not very good at growing keeping bees either but on the new earth the bees will be so great they will live the beetles and the bees will get along they will not they will not harm each other and the honey is going to be so sweet. It's going to be so good. And so I'm just saying, just think about all the little things in your life. Next time you're traveling down the road and you see all the dead grass or the, the wilting trees, just think about the fact that on the new earth, that grass is going to be green. It's going to be pretty. We're not going to have to cut it. I don't know. We might have to cut it. But it's just... It's going to be awesome. I mean, just think about little things in your life when you're going around in this world and just think, on the new earth, that's going to be so much more beautiful. It's going to be, I mean, it's just what no eye has seen and no, what my, no mind has even conceived of is what God's got in store for us. It is a kingdom where we have a king and we will live in a kingdom. And if you have to go back to... Sir Arthur and the knights and the round table to imagine a king and a kingdom. Go ahead. Go for it. We're going to be eating good. We're going to be sitting around tables laughing together, sharing meals together. It's going to be awesome. I mean, awesome. I look forward to it. And so I want to at some point, probably when we get to the New Testament and we're working through the New Testament, to... um, to bring up this topic of the kingdom of God. I I don't think we'll be going to be able to avoid it because that's what we're going to be reading that they're talking about is the kingdom of God. And so um, I want to take some time when we get there to just talk about the kingdom of God, try to paint a picture of what the Bible says about the kingdom of God and get it in our minds in such a way that when we actually share the gospel, we'll actually do it the same way that they did, that we will begin to share the gospel with people talking about the kingdom of God. That's going to be our framework, our, our base for how we describe salvation to people. We're going to describe it in the terms of a kingdom, God's kingdom, that we will be able to be allowed to be a part of. So <clears throat> Isaiah has prophesied and shared with us this idea that God that God has sent a king, a Messiah, Jesus, and that Jesus died for our sins. And as king, he didn't just die for our sins, but he was then rose back to life, and he is still alive. 
and that everything, the kingdom, within the kingdom, belongs to him. And at the end of the day in our lives, there's only going to be one kingdom. And so we are either going to be allowed to enter into that kingdom or we're going to be cast out as enemies from that kingdom. And God has given everyone a choice. He's done all the work for us, but he's given us a choice. And he's going to allow us to choose. And you have this life to choose. Your friends have this life to choose. Your family has this life to choose. Have they made a choice? Because as the scripture makes clear, you don't just get in because you think you're a good person. You don't enter into the kingdom just because you would vote to enter the kingdom if it was your choice. God has made it clear. He's done everything for us. His son came and died for us. And he's asked us to repent of our sins, turn from sin, and turn to him. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to submit to him as your king? To obey him? To live for him? To serve him? To worship him? And he said, if you are, then it's going to be so much better. Not only will he be your king, he'll be your father. Not only will you be a member of the kingdom, you will be royalty in the kingdom, co-heir with his son, the prince of peace. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful picture. I pray that everyone here has made that choice. That's what the honestly, that's what Sunday is. It's the gathering of the saints, the gathering of believers. I'm looking around the room. I've had lots of conversations with with most everybody here. I pray that everybody's already made that choice. But you know somebody who hasn't. You know somebody who hasn't. And God has asked you to reach out and share with them that message about the kingdom of God. That he's offering it to them for free. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you. Father, we know that you're offering to us an invitation to live for you. To be accepted into your kingdom. To worship you as our king to honor you, to serve you, to obey you. But you've promised us so much more, that you would adopt us into your family, that we would be your children, that we would be your sons, we would be your daughters, that we would would be loved and cherished and brought close and taken care of just like you would take care of your own children, that you have made us co-heirs with Christ to inherit the same things, this kingdom of God, to live on it forever with you. And you've promised to, to make all things right and to put an end to all sin and all pain and all suffering. And we can't, we can't wait to see that day. We look forward to it, Father. In the meantime, Father, help us to be on mission to share that gospel message with those in our lives and those we cross paths with, to talk about how great that kingdom is and how it's an invitation just ready to be taken. We love you, Father. Please, please guide our conversations and, and our encounters. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. I'm glad y'all are able to make it here today. I love y'all, care deeply about y'all, and I pray y'all have an awesome, awesome week. Let's close together in prayer. Father, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for all good things, but Father, we thank you are in power. We thank you are in control. We thank you for that you have a kingdom that that you can secure and establish and, and, and nobody can, can fight against it. Nobody can overthrow it. And that you can keep us 
to where we live in peace and security and safety. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your unending, amazing, faithful love for us, that you would come and die for us, that you would suffer and take, take our punishment and our place so that we could be forgiven. Father, we don't deserve a God this good. We don't deserve your love, but you've given it to us. You've made it clear from the scriptures that you love us. We love you, Father. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.